Well, it's good to see you guys this morning. Uh, I, my name is Trey Corey. For those of y'all who may not know me, I am a, the Southwood College pastor here. I am filling in for Blake. And as we pray that you guys may now know, Blake and Julie had their twins. And so I want to show you guys a little picture of them. Um, on Wednesday night, their twins were born. On the right is little Gracie Elizabeth. She was born first, weighing in at uh, four pounds and 12 ounces, measuring in at 17 inches. Kind of sounds like a boxer. Um, on the left, one minute later, and I'm sure Gracie will always hold this over little Luke, Alexander. Uh, he was born one minute later at five pounds, three ounces, and then 18 and a half inches. It's fun for me to tell you guys, Blake and Julie are doing great. The twins are doing great. Everybody's healthy, and I would like to say that they're settling in, but... Um, as one that's had one newborn, I can't imagine what having two newborns is like. So uh, I know they have a lot of joy. Settling and, and uh, peace and uh, stillness is probably not much of what is going on, but they are doing great. They wanted me to express to you guys that they have just coveted and have really appreciated y'all's prayers um, as they've walked through pregnancy and as they even walked this week through delivery. They just really wanted me to ex- extend to you guys great appreciation and great thankfulness. Um, if you guys have questions of how you can be a blessing to them, or if you have questions of how to serve them or kind of their needs, I'd love to direct you guys to Pam Coke. She'd love to help kind of run point on and, and providing and caring for them. So if you have questions, feel free to ask Pam after the service and she can kind of help you navigate kind of their needs and what's going on for them. Um, and, and as we prayed, you guys now know over the course of about a two week period, our Southwood staff uh, uh, welcomed three new babies. And so our staff has had a lot of changes. I will tell you, Blake and I are exceedingly thankful that David Siobhan is back and healthy because at least we now have one coherent and non-sleep-deprived pastor on staff right now. And so we're thankful David's back. Um, and for us, there's been a lot of changes. I was even thinking for these babies, though, there's been a lot of change. Nine months in a, in a warm, dark, cramped womb and to emerge into the world in a way that had to be incredibly shocking. Both, all three came by C-section. And so imagining these little babies emerging into a bright, uh, incredibly cold surgery room where there's men and women around with all kinds of weird masks and how startling and weird that must have been. Um, and not only for them, but then thinking even for these last few weeks, as in the midst of all the changes, there have been a few things that Marcy and I have wanted to establish for our little girl, Caroline. Uh, first was, uh, on her second day, she got the hearing screening test in the hospital. She passed it with flying colors. About an hour after that, Donna Stewart and one of our good friends, Jamie Bryant, would come by and visit in the hospital. And Jamie leads our uh, college class worship at the Anderson campus. And so we had in our room more musical talent and ability than will ever be in our own home, okay? And so we just kind of hope that maybe by osmosis, our little girl would pick up some musical abilities. And so, um, because she's not getting it from either Marcy nor I. Um, we can't control the musical thing, but we thought there was one thing I wanted to start early in little Caroline's life. And, and hopefully you can see it in this picture. Um, here is an outfit that she's worn about four times in about two and a half weeks. If you can see closely, it's a Dallas Cowboys outfit, here in the early stages of her life, I've wanted to cultivate it in a fear and, and a passion and love for Dallas Cowboys football. So the first Sunday that she was born and she was alive, we sat there together on the couch watching the Dallas Cowboys play uh, a pathetic game just two weeks ago. We both, I think, fell asleep. But nonetheless, we're building those cultures, those values, those worldviews, the things that we want to pass on, right? Before you experienced parents come up and rebuke me, uh, let me ex- express and affirm that I know that what, in the midst of all the changes and all the things we want to see in her life, really the most critical thing here in these first few weeks is the idea to establish in them security and safety. In the midst of all the things that have happened, in the midst of all the changes and all the things that we would hope for Caroline and Blake and Julia would hope for Gracie and Luke, uh, the most critical thing we can do right now is to create an environment where they feel secure and they feel safe. 
In fact, if you think about it, that doesn't just end with infancy. That continues on into childhood. And if you are, are honest with one another, that continues on even into adulthood. No matter our age, no matter our stage, really what's critical to human nature is a need and, and a source to find security and to find safety. As we mature, we get far more sophisticated in the way that we manifest and pursue such need for security. And so as adults, we no longer have security blankets. We no longer have pacifiers, but now we've exchanged those for far, for far more adult-like pacifiers and security blankets that we now know as 401ks, Right. And of course, the last couple of years, we realized those aren't such good security blankets, right? They don't provide that much comfort anymore. Um, but for you and I, even as from infancy to childhood to adulthood, you and I have a critical need for security and for safety. It is true for every generation, it's true for every age, and it just continues on in life. And so it affects the way that you and I think, it affects the way that you and I walk life out, it affects the way that you and I move in relationships. And so uh, for many of us, it's financial. We, we, we crave and we desire financial security. If you're a student here and you're hoping to graduate, you're wanting to make good grades so that you can get a good job, so that you can make good money, so that you can have financial security. For those of you guys who've already graduated and have been in careers for a long time, so much of what we want to establish and then maintain is financial security. For you students, as you're dating, as you're walking through college, much of what you're wrestling with is, hey, will I ever get married and will I ever find the security that comes with a lasting relationship or will I be left alone and insecure for my life? So we wrestle with that question through college and then we establish it and we answer it in adulthood, but then we still wrestle with other needs and other manifestations of this primary need for security. This morning, we're going to turn in, in the book of Ruth. We're going to be, at least with you guys, for one morning in Ruth chapter one. So if you want to turn to Ruth, we're going to see a family in Ruth chapter one that's going to be wrestling with the same need for security. In the midst of life that is uncontrollable, unstable at times, the need for security is so crucial and you're going to see a family wrestle with the need search for security. You're going to see kind of along with us as we walk through it, kind of what they discover. And as you guys turn to Ruth chapter one, if you guys don't know your Bibles very well, Ruth is a tiny little book. You're probably going to pass over it really easily. Uh, Ruth comes right after the Pentateuch and then right after Judges and then Joshua. Comes right after the book of Judges and it's just a short four chapter book. I'll tell you guys, the book of Ruth has probably become one of my most favorite books. As a guy, it is a very little-known book. I've always uh, find myself fascinated that as speaking to an audience, it always seems that the women and the, uh, the females in the audience have been through the book of Ruth, love the book of Ruth. Guys have never heard of the book of Ruth, and the only thing they know about Ruth is the candy bar baby Ruth, okay? And so this morning, as we kind of walk through what may be a, a, an unfamiliar book to you guys, and really what I think is a jewel of the Old Testament, it, for me, it's a really fun morning, and I hope you guys enjoy what I think is going to be a stretching storyline. But look with me in Ruth chapter 1. We're going to start verses 1 to 2, and kind of, in a sense, set up the setting and the background to the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. We find this. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Epaphrodites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Verses 1 and 2 provide us a lot of background to the book of Ruth. Ruth, in your Bible, follows right after the book of Judges, but the opening verse of Ruth tells us that the book of Ruth actually occurs somewhere right in the middle and right in the midst of the book of Judges. And the book of Judges kind of sets up as a simple cycle through the nation of Israel's history. After Joshua died and Joshua's leadership passed and the elders that followed after Joshua passed, a new generation arose in the book of Judges who did not know God, nor his ways, nor what he had done for the nation of Israel in the past. And as a result of them not knowing the God of Israel, the God of the Old Testament, they chose to do evil and did as they pleased in their own eyes. 
There was no king at the time. There was no central leader that ruled over all of Israel at the time. And in that day and age, there was no king. In fact, Joshua, as he died, sent the 12 tribes of Israel into the promised land to finish off and to possess the areas of the land that had been allotted to them. In many ways, the book of Judges is a lot like the Wild West, okay? People have gone out into frontier living. Life is very unestablished. There is no law. There is no order. There is constant enemies. And as a result, there is going to be rampant immorality through the book of Judges. In fact, a cycle begins and continues throughout the book of Judges in which the people forget God, they disobey God, and as a result, God causes them to suffer all kinds of horrible consequences. And in the midst of those horrible consequences of oppression by enemies, uh, lack of fruit from the land, they begin to cry out to God and they return to God and God in his grace and in his compassion raises up a judge. Usually these judges were just local men and women that were raised up for a time, a brief period in which they removed the, the obstructions and the oppression that Israel was experiencing and then they also reestablished the, the law and the word of God. And through the judge's lifetime, Israel again obeyed and walked with God and they found great blessing. But as soon as the judge died, Israel again returned back to foreign gods and to a foreign lifestyle and did evil. In fact, it's not just a cycle through the book of Judges, but it's actually a downward spiral because each generation that comes after a judge passes away gets further into immorality. In fact, really the book of Judges ends and is an incredibly dark book. And Ruth is going to come in this little book right in the middle of really the darkest period of Israel's history and is going to be quite a little jewel. And what you're going to see in this character, Ruth, as we look at this morning, is she's going to emerge in an incredibly dark period, and she's going to represent all that God could have hoped and established in the life of Israel. She is a marvelous woman. We're going to kind of start looking at her this morning, but she's going to come in this background, in this context. The narrator of Ruth tells us even a little bit more. He tells us that there was a famine in the land, and then a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. And so the story starts out with this little family, a little family that comes from Bethlehem. And in Bethlehem, there's actually a problem. In Bethlehem, there's a famine. And in the English, you don't pick this up as well, but in the Hebrew, it's really ironic because Bethlehem, if you were to translate it in English, literally means house of bread. And so here in the house of bread, there is no bread because there's a famine and there's great irony and great unnaturalness in the situation. So a family is going to emerge and deal with that problem and their response is going to be interesting. But really, it reminded me a little bit of a situation that Marcy and I encountered our second year in East Asia. We had been living in a random uh, city in East Asia for a couple years and we had a, a situation emerge at a time in which Subway came to our city. Uh, the restaurant that you know, the sandwich shop, Subway came to our city and at the time, all we had was KFC, uh, McDonald's, and Pizza Hut. And to be perfectly honest with you, that was just plenty enough for my diet. I was satisfied. But for many of those that had healthier diets, Subway's coming to our city represented a healthy Western food alternative. And there were many that were excited. It's opening night for weeks that preceded. It was published. It was in newspapers. It was in uh, foreigner magazines. And so I think every single foreigner came on the opening night that Subway opened in our city. One Subway in a city of 7 million people, Okay. And so every single Westerner, I think, was actually at the subway and the line for subway wrapped blocks around, okay? Every Westerner, one little spot in this random city in East Asia and a subway opens. By the time we got into subway, not only was there very little meat, but there was absolutely no bread, <laughs> okay? And they weren't going to have bread for another three to four hours. And at this point, after waiting for a long, long line, my blood sugar has dropped. I'm in a critical spot, okay? This was crushing, this was not just ironic, but this was devastating because at Subway, there was no bread, okay? Not just devastating, but completely unnatural. And it's the same thing that's existing here in Ruth 1.1. In Bethlehem, the house of bread, there is no bread. 
It's not just unnatural, but if you know the Old Testament, it's not a stretch to say the reason more than likely that there was no bread was because Israel was disobedient. Israel had forgotten God, and so God had removed his provision and his blessings so as to draw them back to him. And what you're going to see is a family and a man that leads a family make a decision that I think in many ways could be questioned. What he's going to do is he's going to move his family away from the city of God and from the people of God, and he's going to take them to a foreign city, a foreign people, and to foreign gods. Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, is going to move his family from Bethlehem to a city within Moab, to a foreign people, a foreign city. And his decision, I think, in many ways is because he's in search of security. There's no food, there's no provision, there's no security in Bethlehem. And so what he's going to do is remove his family from that situation and in search for security found in a different place. But what he's going to discover is, in fact, going to be, I think, the exact opposite. Look with me now in verses 3 to 5. Look what happens to his family. Often narrators and narratives don't exactly tell us whether someone's decision was right or wrong, but I think the consequences of the decision more often than not tell us, hey, was that a right decision or a wrong decision? Look what happens to this family. Verse 3. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives, for the name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. A family that was in search of security is going to make a move to find security, but what they're going to discover is going to be that which undermined every sense of security that they once had. Elimelech is going to take his family to a foreign people, a foreign culture, a foreign land. I will tell you as one that has had multiple encounters and moving transitions residentially to foreign places, that is more than likely almost always never a move towards security, okay? Uh, my junior year in college, I went for a summer over to Italy. I did a study abroad for six weeks. And then after the study abroad in Italy was done for six weeks, uh, a couple of uh, guys and I traveled around Europe for another two weeks. And at the end of our two months, basically in Italy, I was at a restaurant and I did what I had done probably about 60 times in two months, once a day more than likely, I ordered a pizza. Okay, I'm an incredibly picky eater. And so I ordered a pizza in Italy and I always like pepperoni pizza. But in Italy, what you always get is not pepperonis, but what you get is slivered peppers on your pizza. This would happen day in and day out. And I weathered it. I dealt with it. You know, you can pick them off. But at some point, as the two months got on, at some point in a restaurant in Italy in Rome with two good guy friends, my slivered pepper pizza came out and it, something happened in me and I just broke. All of a sudden, I began to weep uncontrollably at my slivered peppered pizza, Okay. I got two good guy friends there and they're just looking at me shocked and stunned. Here I am, a man at 21 years old and I'm weeping because there is slivered pepper pizza in front of me, okay? Being in a foreign culture in an unfamiliar place, it took about two months for me to break down in Italy. Some of y'all know that Marcy and I spent a couple years of our life in East Asia and I will tell you what took two months in Italy took two days in East Asia, okay? Uh, It was two days in East Asia in a place that was very foreign, very different, foreign people, foreign culture, foreign language, foreign foods. And again, it's always about food with me, okay? And after not knowing at all what I was eating for two days, I told Marcy, I was like, I need to eat something familiar, something that I know, something that I can get ordered. And so she and I went to KFC, a Mecca in East Asia, okay? And we go into this fine establishment and you walk in and it is flooded with East Asians. There are no lines in East Asia, so you kind of got to work through the line. It takes quite a while. I finally got to the front of the line and I'm trying to order. And again, I don't speak a lick of the language. And so I'm just trying to point. I'm doing my best Pictionary and charades imaginable. All I want is two simple chicken breasts, a thing of fries and a Pepsi. That's all I want. I can't get it ordered. I can't get it figured out. And again, I've waited a long time. My blood sugar has dropped. 
and I lose it, okay? This time I don't lose it by weeping. I lose it by utter frustration and I just flip out. I finally have to go back and, I, and Marcy had been sitting at a table. I'm like, babe, I cannot get food for us tonight. <laughs> I am at my wits end. I need you to intervene. I need you to help. And so she steps in and she helps. But for Marcy and I, in the midst of loving living overseas and loving eventually learning how to live overseas, moving to a foreign culture and a foreign land is never typically a move towards security. Okay. That's what Elimelech is going to do, thinking that he can find his family security, but he's going to find his family the exact opposite. And it wasn't just the, the insecurity that comes with an expense-paid trip to Europe. What's going to happen there over just a short time is that the main character that you thought of the book, Elimelech, is going to die. And then a short time later after that, the two sons of Naomi are also going to die. And so in a short time, this woman is now in a foreign country, in a foreign place, with no responsible man to protect and to provide. And she's there with two foreign daughters-in-laws. <laughs> in a short time, every single security that she could have imagined has been stripped away. And if it weren't for the fact that God is going to intervene here in verse 6, she would have been sunk. In fact, not only would she have had no opportunity for financial provision, but more than likely with no responsible man in that kind of foreign culture, her physical safety was probably more than likely also in jeopardy. So this woman in a short time, this family has moved her and she is now in really harmful situation. And God is going to intervene in verse 6 and the situation is going to begin to turn. But look with me in verse 6. Then she arose, Naomi, with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and giving them food. This is one of only two times in the book of Ruth that we're going to see the narrator say that God actually acts. God doesn't actually show up in the book of Ruth that often. In fact, it's caused some people to think the book of Ruth shouldn't be included in our Bible. But the reality of the book of Ruth is that even though the narrator does not show us that God is intervening and practically involved, the circumstances of the book as we walk through are going to be absolutely clear that God is in control. But here in verse 6, God is going to move in a very clear way. Food is going to come back into the house of bread. And so Naomi is going to up and move uh, her family. But what she's going to do is she's going to, uh, in a sense, respond. And you're going to see uh, uh, Naomi and these two daughters-in-laws respond to the situation, respond to the trial. And you're going to see what they believe about security. You saw what Elimelech believed. You saw Elimelech search for security in a foreign land. You're going to see what these women do next. Look with me in verse 7. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughter-in-laws with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-laws, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. Naomi's desire for these two daughters-in-laws is that they would find rest. A better translation of that Hebrew word is actually the idea of security. It's not just that she wants them to find a nap, like I'm going to get this afternoon, right? What she's wanting for them is security, safety, provision, protection. And, and look at what she believes about where that's found. Look back with me in verse 7. She says to them, verse 8, Go return each of you to her mother's house. What she wants for them is to return back to their mom's house. Because back in their mom's house, they're going to be, have the best chance again to find a Moabite man. Naomi's idea of where security is found is actually in marriage. We're going to see this even a couple chapters later in the book in Ruth. Naomi's going to be sticking to this idea that security is found in marriage because that's what she's going to be doing throughout the book. She's going to be looking for Ruth to find a husband. She first tells Ruth, hey, here's how you're going to find a husband. Go back to your mom. <laughs> Go back to your culture and look for a Moabite man. If you find a Moabite man, then you're going to find security, you'll find provision, and you'll find protection. In fact, Ruth won't do that. We'll see in a minute. And so later on, when Ruth is going to accompany Naomi back to Bethlehem, 
Naomi's going to be still stuck on this idea that security is found in marriage, but she says this, Ruth chapter 3. Now, Naomi, your mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? The storyline that unfolds in chapter 3, again, she's looking for security, but what she's going to try to do in chapter 3 is get Ruth married. And a man is going to emerge in chapter 2 of the book of Ruth, and what Naomi's going to be thinking in her head is, hey, let's get little Ruth married off to this guy. Because security for Naomi is found in marriage. For many of us, that's often the idea we have as well. For many of us, we think, hey, if I can get married, that's where security is found. Or having once now finally been married, now I'm finally secure and provided for. That's what Naomi thinks. Orpah and Ruth are going to do something different. Look in verse 14. You're going to see what these other women do. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Orpah is going to take off. Ruth is going to stay with Naomi. And Orpah is going to take off because, again, she's going to buy into Naomi and what she's selling. Orpah is going to say, you know, you're right. My best chance at finding security is if I go back home to my Moabite mom and I look for a Moabite man and if I fall back and worship with my Moabite gods. So Orpah is going to take off. And Orpah is going to say, hey, that's where security is found is in a Moabite man and in Moabite gods and in marriage. Ruth is going to do something incredibly contrary to both Orpah and Naomi. Look with me in verse 16. But Ruth, contrast, said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, Naomi said no more to Ruth. It's interesting, Ruth is going to do something completely contrary to both Naomi and to Orpah. Ruth is going to forgo every sense and source of security that you and I would construct that the world tells us exists. Ruth says, hey, I don't care where I live. I don't care uh, who I marry. I don't care um, where I'm going. It doesn't matter because all that matters is what Ruth is going to seek. And that's going to be, according to chapter 2, she's going to seek security in God. Ruth chapter 2, Boaz is going to say about Ruth, he says, May the Lord reward your work and your wages to be full from the Lord of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Ruth is going to do something so different than Naomi, than Elimelech, than Orpah. Ruth is going to forsake every other security and just seek God. And really what I think the first half of chapter 1 tells us is that every security that is outside of God eventually falls apart. Eventually it does not protect, eventually it will not provide. And the challenge for you and I is that it is often in those other ideas outside of God that we find security that provide us supports that more often than not we begin to depend upon them, more often than not we begin to lean upon them. The reality is the security outside of God always falls apart. And so the challenge for us is that we would forsake security that is outside of him. I want to ask you this morning, as you look at your life, as you think about your life, what are those things that you would identify as your support systems What are those places, what are those things that you find and you think, hey, if I need security, where do I go? If life begins to crumble, where do I turn? Because it is where you turn. It is your response in tragedy that more often than not shows your belief about where security is found. Elimelech hits a tragedy. We see where he goes. Naomi hits a tragedy. We see where she goes. Orpah hits tragedy. We see where she goes. And for you and I, we often go to a lot of different things that are outside of God whether that's financial, whether that's relational, whether that's physical, whether that's, I don't know what it is in your life, whether it's job performance. For many of us, we find so many things that are securing and stabilizing about our life, but outside of God, those things always eventually are unsure and they fall apart. So the challenge for you and I is to identify those things and to say, hey, you know, this actually, even though I lean on it, maybe I lean on it because God has provided it, but it in and of itself may eventually fail me. 
whether that's my health, whether that's my blessings. I don't know what it is for you and I, whether it's financial, whether it's relational, but in every arena of our life, there are things I think that we lean upon that are false securities that are in a sense outside of God and tragedy strikes because those things that we thought were securing and supporting, they fall away. And those bumpers in a sense fall back and then all of a sudden we have nothing to lean upon because we've been leaning on something that's false. You know, I remember uh, the first bike I ever bought in East Asia because you had to get around in bikes all the time in East Asia. It always failed me. It always broke down. Every single week, a, po- a pedal would fall off, a chain would fall off, a tire would go flat. And so every single week, I was having to fix this bike. But it was the only way to get around. It was at least the only affordable way to get around. And eventually one day, I just had it. <laughs> eventually one day, after the pedal fell off and I was trying to get home for something, I just had it. And I took this bike and I'm the biggest guy, and this bike was incredibly heavy. I took this bike, lifted it up over my head, and just launched it into a bush on the side of the road, okay? Because for me, I realized finally, hey, this is not going to provide reliably for me. And so you know what? It's time to forsake it. It's time to move away from it. And for many of us, I think it's not just enough to identify those things and say, you know what? We've got to move away from this. We've got to identify that this will not support us. But the second step of that is that you and I have got to replace it with something, if you and I have the courage to identify those things that are false supports in our life, then you and I have got to begin to move back to the right thing. And it's not enough just to move away. We've got to also move towards something. Naomi, when every single support system finally falls away, she's going to finally move back toward God. But she's going to move back toward God in a way that I think actually does not bring security, but actually brings terror. She's going to move back toward God in a way that I think is really interesting. Look with me what she does in verses 19 to 21. When all has finally fallen apart and she realizes that there is no other security outside of God, she's going to finally come back to God, but she comes back to God in a way that actually I think is quite, quite broken. Look what she does in verses 19 to 21. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? Naomi looks at her life, she looks at everything that's fallen apart, and she says, you know what? My situation has been utterly reversed. When I left Bethlehem, I was full. When I've come back to Bethlehem, I'm empty. When I left Bethlehem, people knew me as Naomi, and her name meant pleasantness and sweetness. But when she's come back, to Bethlehem, she says, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasantness and sweetness. Call me Mara because I'm bitter. And bitterness is now the characteristic of my life. And the reason why is this. Look at what she does. Look at her view of God. Look at her viewpoint on, on how and, and who God is. She's going to recognize that God is in control. Look at how she says. She's going to refer to God multiple times in this section as the Hebrew name El Shaddai. It, it is the name that characterizes God as all-controlling, all-powerful, and all-able, and almighty. And she's going to say, hey, he, not only is he all able, but he is absolutely responsible for my circumstances. When all has been stripped away, she's going to finally realize, hey, God is in control and God is responsible. And so she's going to lay blame at God. And look what she does. She says, the Almighty, verse 20, has dealt very bitterly with me. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Lord has afflicted me. She's going to recognize that God is in control, but she's going to dismiss that God is still good. She can say that God is in control, but as she blames God, she's going to dismiss the goodness of his character and the goodness of his nature. And in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of trial, when we uh, hold to the control of God, but dismiss the goodness of God, what you end up landing in is a place that is not security at all. You land in a place that is actually quite terrifying. Let me illustrate for you guys. This is our puppy, Millie, okay? Uh, About a year ago, 
my sister-in-law and my wife decided for Halloween that we needed to dress up Millie, okay? So they bought a hot dog costume that was double her size and I think double her weight. And so all you can see is her little sweet, precious little head poking out. And then if you, if you saw a profile shot, you'd realize that her precious little back was just caving in because this costume was so weighty. Um, if that wasn't enough, then they put a little dress on her next. I will tell you, for a whole year, I fought viciously against my wife and my sister-in-law because I never wanted my dog dressed up. Your dog is man's best friend. I realize she's female, but let's not go crazy here, okay? So my wife, and if you look at little Millie here, she's not the most photogenic, if we're all honest with each other. (laughs) She's got a good personality, though, right? Um, She's sweet, okay? So Millie, though, if you're looking at her face, you realize a couple things. One... That's not the look of, of, of joy. That's not the look of security, right? That is the look of terror and, and crouching and utter fear, okay? Because here's why. My wife and my sister-in-law had all control, but they had absolutely no goodness, right? And the result of it for sweet Millie was not security, but utter terror, okay? For a whole year, I had goodness and I had control and she had security. But eventually, after a year of having her, eventually my power was not enough to hold off my wife and my sister-in-law. So now I had goodness, but I did not have control. And the result of that as well for Millie was not security. Again, seen again. Um, let me show you another few examples because some of you guys may decide this upcoming weekend to dress up your pets. And here is an email I got. Here's little Yoda, okay? Again, please don't dress up your pets this weekend, okay? And here's another one, just <laughs> tragic, Okay. I actually got these last two pictures, an email titled, Why Dogs Bite People, okay? Because when we have control but no goodness, it does not lead to to security. It leads to something that is incredibly contrary, right? Are you with me? All right, I think I've lost you entirely. Let's get off those guys, okay? But where does one actually find security? Because security is not found in the view of a God that is good but not in control, Security is also not found in a God that is in control but not good. And so where is security found? I think security is found only in an idea of a God who is in control and good. Because if you remove either one of those attributes from God, you land in a place that is not at all security. That's why the scriptures are so clear that God is both. Look with me. First Chronicles chapter 29. We find yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. God is all-controlling. He is El Shaddai. He is almighty, all-able, all-sovereign. But he's not just all-sovereign. He's not just all-controlling. He's also good. So Romans 8.28 is such the encouragement to us because Romans 8.28, I think, really melds these two ideas together. We know that God causes all things. Again, that he is all-sovereign. He is El Shaddai. He is in all control of the universe. But he causes all things, again, to work together for good. That his goodness and his sovereignty are not mutually exclusive. And the reality is that for any of us who have been through tragedy, for any of us who have been through difficulty, and I will tell you, for both Blake, Julie, Marcy, and I, we have been through difficulties <laughs> in terms of waiting and wanting to have kids, okay? And the reality of some of the things we've walked through, I would not call them good, Okay? Some of the things that we've dealt with, some of the things that we've gone through, I, I would not at all say the end result of it was good. It's hard to embrace some of the things we've had to walk through, but in the midst of that which we've walked through, the goal and the hope is that you could still affirm that God is good, and that he still has purposes, and that suffering is not meaningless, that it is not um, without purpose, and that it is not random. But God is in control and that he is still good and is in those two uniond, uniond attributes of his nature that we can find refuge and security. 
That's why the psalmist will so often declare those two things together as, as our shelter. And actually, Ross led us, and I thought myself this morning, we could not have sung some more perfect songs. That God is a refuge and a shelter under whose wing we seek refuge. That's what the psalmist says, Psalm 31, How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you have wrought for those who take refuge in you before the sons of men. You hide them in the secret place of your presence from the conspiracies of man. What I love about Psalm 31 and what I love about the psalmist is that he is often so raw. Life is difficult. Life is uncertain. Life is not stable at times. There are conspiracies and there are difficulties. And so in the midst of that, the psalmist says, hey, God is both great and he's good. And in those two things together, you can find refuge in him. But the moment you divorce one of those attributes from his character, you're going to, find, you're going to land in a place without refuge and without security. Psalmist says also in Psalm 84, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. Again, the goodness and the control and the sovereignty of God weave together in a way that create a refuge for you and I in difficulty. To create a refuge for you and I in the midst of the instability of life. And apart from that character and apart from that nature, there is no security outside of him. There is no security outside of God himself, and therefore we must seek him and we must pursue him. You know, what I love about the book of Ruth here is that you're going to have a woman, a foreign woman, who's going to marry into a family that was Israelite, and yet a family who does not seem to really worship and know God very well. And she's going to marry in the midst of tragedy. She's going to make a choice that is stunning. In the midst of tragedy, she's going to choose a God that she necessarily did not fully know, and she's going to worship and pursue and find refuge in a God of Israel. A God that even Israel itself had not yet really purposefully and fully followed, faithfully and trusted. And yet she's going to choose and to walk with God. Ruth is going to set up for us in the book of Ruth the great example through the book of Judges. A pearl in the mud, so to speak, of a generation that did not know God. And yet Ruth will pursue and know God and show marvelously that for those that seek God and for those that forsake false securities, what God is going to do is intervene and provide and show his utter goodness. So for the rest of the book of Ruth, what you're going to see in chapters 2 and 3, and I know we won't be following and walking through the book here and here in main service, but what you're going to see in chapters 2 and 3 and even chapter 4 is that Ruth is going to utterly forsake false securities and she's going to cling and pursue God. And as a result of it, God is going to intervene and show his goodness, not just for the nation of Israel and ending a famine, but he's going to show his goodness to Ruth and even to Naomi in ways that are unimaginable, in ways they could have never anticipated and known. And it's going to start immediately in the very next chapter in a way that is marvelous. You know, as I kind of think about Ruth and as I think about Naomi this morning, in some regards, it is almost easier to trust and to walk with God in the midst of tragedy. Why? Because in the midst of tragedy, every other security that you often depend on is removed. And sometimes there is no other alternative than the challenge of tragedy is still believing that he's good in the midst of it. I think for us, more often than not, you and I aren't necessarily today living in tragedy and maybe the wounds of a tragedy are not so fresh We've often been through difficulties, but for you and I, I think sometimes the more challenging thing is to pursue and to respond in obedience to the call of God when often it means a threatening to our security. It is in tragedy that sometimes it's easy, but outside of tragedy, when God calls, will we obey him faithfully, especially if his call comes to threatening our security? What if God called you in some ways to sacrifice financially and sacrifice in such a way that you cannot purposefully and fully guarantee your own financial security. What if he called some of you guys, uh, especially those of you who are not married that are in relationships, what if he called you to a place or to a time or out of a relationship in a way that really threatened every security that you held dear? 
How would you respond? What if he called you to a place or he called you to a person that really stretched and moved you outside of what was secure and comfortable? How would you respond when he calls if it threatens the very things that we find security in? The reality of the spiritual life is that is what God is always doing. Christ put it like this in Matthew 16. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The reality of the spiritual life is that for those who will forsake the securities that are outside of God, who in a sense will throw their lives away and throw them to God, what they find in response is they actually find life. But for you and I that protect and try to preserve our life and our securities, the reality is what we're going to find is that we can't actually protect and preserve them. And what Christ says will actually happen is that we're going to lose them. That for those of us that want to protect our very lives and want to ensure our own security, what's going to end up happening is that we cannot. And what we're going to lose is, is our lives or, or the worth and the meaning of life now. The reality is you can live for today or you can live for tomorrow. And if you live for tomorrow, you've got to forsake today. And for those that forsake today, they'll actually find life in today and they'll find life in tomorrow. And yet that's the challenge because that is so non-instinctive to the way that you and I are wired from the womb. <laughs> you and I are wired from the womb to take matters into our own hand, just like a limelech, to control and to guarantee our security. And Christ calls us to the exact opposite. So how far would you go to obey Christ? How far would you go to see your own security threatened? Would you obey him in any place, at any time, in any way? Where are the walls that you have, in a sense, risen up and guarded Christ from? Because it is in those places that I think Christ wants to come and stretch and move you beyond your own security to find something even more freeing, and that is in an abandonment to worship to him. Let me pray for us this morning. Father God, we give you great thanks that you are our sovereign and our good king. That in the midst of life that is unstable, that you are in control. You are in control even beyond what we can see. And so we give you thanks that not only can we not preserve our own spiritual life, not only can we not guarantee our own salvation, that, that we have to actually trust in one who has worked on our behalf. And that there's nothing we can do to accomplish and merit salvation and your pleasure. And so even in, in our own salvation to begin with, we have to forsake it in our own worldly efforts and say, you know, only the thing we can depend upon is what your son has done on the cross on our behalf. So, Father, I pray for some of us that are here this morning that have never begun the spiritual journey yet. I pray that they would forsake the confidence and the security that comes in what they think that they can merit and what they think that they can earn. And, Father, I ask for them that you begin to wrestle and you begin to challenge and stretch them to realize that what you have done on their behalf is far greater than they'll ever be able to do themselves. That in the Son, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross, that you granted them life eternal and the complete forgiveness of sins and that all one has to do is receive that free gift by, by forsaking our own efforts, Lord. For those of us here this morning who have begun that race already, Lord, I pray that you would stretch us, that you would identify those things in our life that we really find support in falsely. I pray that you would challenge us, that you would convict us, and I pray that you would give us tangible ways as we walk this week out um, to reestablish and, and to find a radical reorientation of life that would forsake those things, that would live sacrificially, that would live in worship and pursue you to live not for today, but for tomorrow, Lord. I pray that you'd give us courage. I pray that you'd give us boldness to pursue you and to believe that not only are you good, but that you are in control and that you are sovereign. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit. Amen. Thanks for coming this morning. We'll see you guys next week.